Well, let us read from God's Word again, this time from Psalm 18. Uh, as you find it there in your copy of God's Word, Psalm 18, on page 545 of the Church Bible. Psalm 18. We read the first 19 verses this morning. Uh, we want now to read uh, the second half of the psalm, picking up at verse 20. Psalm 18 and verse 20. David has just described how the Lord has uh, done awesome and spectacular and staggering things in order to reach down from on high and rescue him. And then in verse 20, he says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous, torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. 
They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. Peoples whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Amen. This too is the word of the Lord. Well, please turn once more in the Word of God to this 18th Psalm that we're looking at together over the course of our services today, and in particular to the second part of the Psalm that we read just a few moments ago. Uh, This is the longest Psalm in the Psalter uh, that we've studied up to this point, Uh, the longest Psalm by some way, uh, and that shows us that it is uh, unusually important Uh, and extra specially worthy of our attention. Just to remind you of what we looked at this morning, uh, we saw that Psalm 18 is giving praise and thanks to God because he has delivered the psalmist, King David, from all his enemies. We see that in the title, uh, right at the very beginning of the psalm, Uh, This is the song to the Lord that David wrote on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And we see that in the little uh, preface to the psalm in verses 1 to 3 and the little epilogue to the psalm in verses 46 to 50. Uh, It's summed up really there in verse 3. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. And we were thinking uh, that this is a psalm not just for anointed kings of Israel. uh, This is a psalm for all God's people to use uh, when they are going through a period of particularly intense uh, opposition from the devil Uh, We have the world and the flesh and the devil that are leagued against us. Uh, We may not have flesh and blood enemies, but ultimately we have spiritual enemies dogging our steps every day. And this is the kind of prayer that we need to pray in order that the Lord will give us help and strength in our distress. And then, of course, we all know about distressing circumstances that come with living in a fallen world. Uh, grief and pain and heartaches and disappointments of all kinds. Uh, And so uh, this is a good prayer for us to pray, uh, crying to the Lord for help and teaching us what that help 
looks like and what we should expect when we pray for it. So this morning we looked at verses 3 to 6 and we saw that prayer for the Lord's deliverance, a prayer for deliverance. This is David's response to his enemy's attack. He cries out to God for help and God hears his prayer. Even though God is in his temple, God is in heaven, uh, light years away it would seem, and yet David's cry from here on earth reaches all the way to God in heaven. He hears and he sends help. And then we saw in verses 7 to 19 how that help that God sends in response to David's prayer is described so dramatically. Uh, we have this picture of the Lord's deliverance in verses 7 to 19. David describes the help, the deliverance that God sends using imagery that is cherry-picked from the book of Exodus, uh, from the account of the plagues, the ten plagues in Egypt, from the crossing of the Red Sea, from the Lord coming down at Mount Sinai in smoke and fire and thunder and lightning. And this is the kind of awesome power that God exerted when he was saving David. That's the point of this description. David is saying, this is how God answered my prayer. This is the kind of power that he exerted, the kind of power that he exerted when he was bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. David is just one single individual. God saved two million of his people out of Egypt. David is just one single individual, and yet he says in verses 16 to 19 that God, this awesome, mighty, transcendent God, that this God moved heaven and earth to rescue him. And perhaps we wonder why. Why did God send this help? Is this not overkill? Is this not somewhat over the top? All this power, all this effort, all this sound and fury described in verses 7 to 19 for one man. Why does God do it? And that brings us to verses 20 to 27. And we see here in these verses the motivation for the Lord's deliverance. The motivation for the Lord's deliverance. The end of verse 19 gives us an explanation for the Lord's deliverance, which then David develops uh, and teases out in verses 20 to 27. At the end of verse 19, David says, He rescued me. He did all this remarkable stuff described in 7 to 19. He did all this. He rescued me. Why? Because he delighted in me. He delighted in me. And David goes on to expand on that, and, and he makes clear what he means by this. The Lord heard David's prayer. The Lord rescued David because David lived a life of consistent obedience to the Lord. Verses 20 to 24. That's the point of these verses that we sang earlier. 
the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from my guilt. So that's why, he says, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now that maybe sounds pretty obnoxious. Maybe you're not happy or comfortable at all with that kind of language in the mouth of a believer. It sounds jarring, doesn't it? For someone to be going on and on over five verses talking about their blamelessness and their righteousness. And we need to be careful that we don't misunderstand what David is saying here. This is the same sort of thing that we saw last week in Psalm 17. David is not talking about justification by works. This is not David claiming that he has earned his salvation because of his righteousness. He's talking, rather, about his behavior as far as Saul is concerned. He's talking about his general way of life. He's not claiming to be perfect. He's claiming to be sincere. He's saying, I'm not a hypocrite. I have genuinely tried to honor the Lord in all my ways. I'm not using religion as a a kind of horrible cloak to deceive people into thinking that that I'm something that I'm not. I'm not using it to cover up all kinds of horrible hidden sins. David had two opportunities at least to kill Saul and to take the crown. His sworn enemy who's been hunting him and trying to kill him, who repeatedly has thrown a spear at him to try to pin him to the wall. Uh, His sworn enemy now, uh, on two occasions, is at his mercy. And his men, his friends, his supporters are urging him to kill him. They're coming up with all kinds of pious arguments and they're saying, look, David, the Lord has given Saul into your hands. And David refused to lay a finger on the Lord's anointed king. You remember how he was conscience-stricken for even just cutting off a tiny piece of Saul's robe while he was sleeping. That's the kind of thing that he means when he says in verse 23, I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. I didn't do anything wrong. My conscience is clear as far as Saul is concerned. I think I maybe used this illustration last week when we were thinking about Psalm 17, but if someone were to come in and accuse you of murder you would protest your innocence, wouldn't you? You would say, I did not do this. I am completely innocent. I am blameless. And someone might say, well, hang on a minute. You you, you Christians, you know, you you talk about how, you know, you're sinful from the moment of conception. 
and you know you, you've sinned against the Lord every day in your thoughts, words, and deeds, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, if you're angry with someone, you, you've committed murder, haven't you, in your heart? And all of that is true, but that doesn't mean that you're guilty of this thing that you're being accused of. You can maintain your innocence 100% because you are blameless as far as that matter goes. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that, that David is saying here. He's not claiming that he's perfect. He's claiming rather that he is consistent, that he's not a hypocrite, that he is a sincere believer. And David is saying here, and this is really practical and really important for us as we think about uh, crying to the Lord for help in our distress. David is saying that's the kind of person that the Lord helps. That's the kind of person that the Lord blesses and rewards. That's the language, isn't it, that David uses, uh, verse 24. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. That's the kind of person that the Lord blesses. And that's the point of verses 25, 26, and 27, because in these verses, they follow on from what David has just been saying. And these verses are spelling out God's general operating principle. This is God's MO. Uh, this is what God always does. These are the kind of believers who can expect the Lord to buy the heavens and come down to help them, riding on cherubim and draw them out of deep waters. The kind of believers who are blameless and pure. Because that's what God does. That's how God works. That's how he treats his people. We're not talking here about salvation. We're talking about how God deals with his own people. He saves humble people, and he resists the pride. He deals with us according to our behavior. That's why, actually, we have it later on in the psalm. Uh, in verse 41, we have these other people, and they're crying for help in their distress, just like David was. They're crying to the Lord, in fact, they're praying to God that God will save them. But there's no answer for them. There's no help for those people. Because they're not blameless. They're not pure. They're wicked. It's the flip side of what the psalmist says in Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So David is in distress. He's being assailed by these torrents of destruction. He's experiencing these cords of death that are dragging him down to destruction. And he cries to the Lord for help. And the Lord moves heaven and earth to send that help because David is blameless, because he is pure, because he is consistent, because he is godly. And that is a real challenge for us, isn't it? And an encouragement. 
If you're the kind of Christian who plays fast and loose with God's rules and God's statutes, don't be surprised when your prayers go unanswered. Don't be surprised if you don't see God's blessing. Don't be surprised if you're losing the battle against sin and temptation. Don't be surprised if you're feeling overwhelmed by anxiety and fear. Don't be surprised if you're plagued by doubts and lacking assurance. Because if you're the kind of person who doesn't put God's rules before you and doesn't turn away from the wicked, as David puts it here, if you're the kind of person and you don't really care about holiness and you're not striving to be godly, then you're condemning yourself to go limping and hobbling all through this life. You may be a Christian and you'll make it to heaven, but you will do very little good to yourself or to anyone else on your way there. These verses are warning us that you can't live as you please. You can't live a careless Christian life and expect there to be no consequences, as if God is blind to all of that, because he saved you, because you've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, then God just kind of looks at you all the time as if you're perfect and treats you as if you're perfect. And these verses are warning us that that's not the case. If you call yourself a Christian and yet your Bible reading is shambolic and you rarely pray and your attendance at church and your involvement in the life of the church is spotty and it really depends on how you're feeling on any particular day, whether you're tired or not, whether you have some better offer on the table or not, if you're the kind of Christian who's constantly filling your mind with all kinds of muck from the television and from social media, and you're spending hours and hours gossiping and running people down, don't be surprised if you're not enjoying God's blessing, if he's not answering your prayers, and if he's not sending you help and strength so that you can thrive in spiritual warfare. And please, again, don't misunderstand me. Eternal life can't be earned by us, by our righteousness. Salvation is free. It is gracious. It is by faith in Jesus Christ. But once we have been saved, God's blessings are usually proportionate to our obedience. That's what these verses are telling us. There's nothing automatic about them. And so we have to make sure that we are setting ourselves in the path of God's blessing. The motivation for the Lord's deliverance. And then, secondly, in verses 28 to 45, we see the manner of the Lord's deliverance. The manner of the Lord's deliverance. We're told in verse 27 that the Lord saves the humble. And now David shows us in dramatic picture language again what 
the Lord's help and what the Lord's salvation normally looks like. Verses 28 and 29 sum up how God works. And then verses 30 to 45 elaborate on what these two verses say. Let me just read 28 and 29. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. It's very important that we see the two sides in in that verse. David does not say, I can run against a troop. And I can leap over a wall. He says, by you, I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. That's the manner of the Lord's deliverance. The key word here is cooperation. It's a joint venture. The Lord acts in David so that David is able to act. And that's what we see all through these verses, isn't it? Isn't it? This alternation. It's like a, a, a tug of war. The Lord does something, and then in the very next breath, we're told that David does it. Uh, well, which is it? Is it the Lord doing it, or is it David doing it? Is this a contradiction? No, it's not a contradiction. Both of these things are true. It's just what Paul says in Colossians 1.29. He says, I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Or Philippians 2.13, I quoted earlier, It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in these verses. The Lord fills David with his strength so that David can then go and obey him and serve him. As David says in verse 1, the Lord is his strength. And it's, it's so striking, isn't it? The picture language here. David tells us that he's able to do these amazing superhuman feats because God is enabling him. He's able to jump tall buildings in a single bound. I mean, that's what he says, isn't it, in verse 29? This is the stuff of Marvel films. Verse 29, by you I can run against a troop, one man against a whole army, a whole platoon of crack soldiers. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. I can't remember who it was that was supposed to be able to jump tall buildings in a single bound. Was it the billion-dollar man or maybe it was Wonder Woman? Maybe it was Superman, although Superman can fly, so maybe it wasn't Superman. But you get the point. Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about, but those of a certain age will remember what I'm talking about. Or verse 34, He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Imagine Arnold Schwarzenegger 
uh, maybe not nowadays, but in his prime, you know, that's the, the kind of uh, bodybuilder with muscles bursting out all over him. He's able to bend a bow of bronze. Uh, or verse 42, I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. Now, these, this is picture language. David didn't literally jump over tall buildings. He didn't literally go out against uh, a troop of men by himself. These, these things are not literally true of him. But it is true, isn't it, that again and again he was able to succeed against all the odds when, humanly speaking, he should have been crushed going into one-to-one -one combat with a, a nine-foot giant whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Uh, and yet David goes in and he beats Goliath. And this is why. It's because the Lord was his strength. And the wonderful thing is that this is true of you and me. In ourselves, we are so weak, just as David was weak in himself. In verse 17, you remember, he confessed that his enemies were too powerful from him. On our own strength, we haven't a hope. We can't cope. We can't stand in the face of losing a husband or a wife. There's no way that we can cope watching a loved one suffer chronic pain day after day. We're going through serious illness or increasing confusion. There's no way that we could keep going when our children are going off the rails. How can our young people fight against the, the incredible peer pressure that there is upon them to join in with their friends, getting drunk and having sex outside of marriage. We are so weak. Our enemies are too powerful for us. How can we stand? Here's how we stand. The Lord rescues us from our strong enemy. Notice how he does it. How does he rescue us? He doesn't send an angel down from heaven to whisk you away from that temptation. He doesn't zap you with a kind of spiritual anesthetic so that you just don't feel tempted any longer. He doesn't make the people who are hurting you vanish in a puff of smoke. That's not what the Lord's help and the Lord's rescue looks like, not according to these verses. No, it, 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 he does something even more miraculous. He fills us with the strength to fight. He doesn't do the fighting for us, but he gives us the strength that we need so that we can fight. And the fighting is hard work. Otherwise, why would you call it fighting? The, the very picture tells us that this is hard work. Verse 29, uh, sorry, 
34, he trains my hands for war so that my hands can bend a bow of bronze. That's what the Lord is doing in us when he sends help. He's training your hands for war. The language describes toil and effort and blood, sweat and tears. Just read the accounts of the battles that David is thinking about in this psalm. Uh, They're described for us in 2 Samuel chapter 8, for example. read, Read the stories. It was no picnic. David did not fly in like Superman and the bullets just bounced off him while he blew all his enemies away with a puff of air from his mouth and shot them with laser beams out of his eyes. No, it takes great effort on his part, but he's able to do it because the Lord strengthens him and trains his hands for war so that he can even bend bows of bronze. And for us, it's excruciating, isn't it, to say no to your friends when they're urging you to do something wrong. It's really, really hard. But the Lord comes and gives you the strength. You cry to him for help, and he'll send that help. He'll bend the heavens and come down riding on the cherubim to give you that help. But he's not just going to make your friends vanish and he's not just going to make it easy, but he will give you the strength so that you can stand firm for him. It's hard to stand up for the truth in a class debate when everyone else there in the class, including the teacher, is hostile to what you're saying and you know that they're going to hit what you say. They're going to hate you for what you say. It's hard to turn down the perfect job because you won't work on the Lord's day. It is superhuman to see an elderly widow coping with grief for 20 years without complaining and without self-pity. I talked about this uh, at the Thanksgiving service a few weeks ago for Elsie McCune. And Elsie certainly couldn't bend a bow of bronze. And yet, in spite of losing a daughter in tragic circumstances 27 years ago, and in spite of coping with Harold's dementia over many years and then his death, in spite of unremitting agonizing pain day and night. That bent, frail old woman was able to praise God for giving her a wonderful, wonderful life. Those were her words. God has given me a wonderful, wonderful life. That is superhuman, isn't it? Why? How? How is she able to do it? Because she called on the Lord in her distress, and he was her strength. Friends, don't think that you can live the Christian life on your own strength, on your own willpower. You mustn't think that you can fight indwelling sin by yourself. Don't think for a moment that you're strong enough to serve the Lord and keep your motives pure. He's the only one who can 
give you the resources that you need. So cry to him in prayer and work in the strength that he sends. And whatever he's calling you to do, you can do it. You can change. You can overcome that besetting sin. You can cope with that distressing situation. Whatever he calls you to, you can do it. Not because you're strong, but because he is strong. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, there's one more thing that we need to think about before we leave Psalm 18. And that is the ultimate manifestation of the Lord's deliverance. The ultimate manifestation of the Lord's deliverance. Psalm 18, as we have seen, is the song of God's anointed king who has triumphed over all his enemies in God's strength. God heard his cry for help, and he sent his mighty wonders to establish his kingdom because he delighted in his blameless servant. That's David's story. But of course, it's clearly more than David's story, isn't it? And Psalm 18 itself looks beyond David to the future in verse 50. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. To David, yes, and his offspring forever. Jesus Christ is the ultimate manifestation of the Lord's deliverance. He was the one who could perfectly say, I love you, O Lord, my strength. He was the beloved son who perfectly loved his father. And like David, Jesus could say, there is but a step between me and death. That was true when he was a baby. And Herod tried to have him killed. And all through his public ministry, his enemies conspired to kill him. They opposed him in every way, trying to destroy him, trying to silence him by any means. The devil was constantly attacking him, not just tempting him openly in the wilderness, but in any number of subtle ways, even through the well-meaning advice of his closest friends and family. And the Lord sent help and strength time and time again to sustain Jesus and to work his awesome miracles through him. And so we read of these spectacular things that Jesus did, how the demons fled in terror, how the gospel was preached powerfully. Those walking in darkness saw a great light. The blind received their sight. The dead were raised. And he did all these things in the power of God that flowed in him. And we see this psalm fulfilled at the cross on that day of Jesus' calamity when his enemies certainly seemed too mighty for him. The cords of death encompassed him. 
and literally dragged Jesus to death. And yet, Jesus experienced on the cross far, far worse than anything that David ever experienced. Torrents of destruction assailed him during those three hours of darkness. And in those three hours of darkness, Jesus was on the receiving end of the judgments described in verses 7 to 15. As the Lord came down riding on the cherub to pour out his anger and his fury and his judgment and his punishment upon Jesus Christ. He was the object of the Lord's anger because he was the sin bearer. He was the scapegoat. He was the substitute for sinners. And so he became the Lord's enemy for those three terrible hours. And the devouring fire and the hailstones and the coals of fire and the arrows of God rained down upon Jesus as he endured the blast of God's nostrils, the fury of God against sin. The judgment of God on his enemies, which was David's salvation and comfort, was David's son's greatest desolation. In his distress, Jesus called upon the Lord. In the words of Psalm 18, To my God I cried for help. You remember the words of that cry, don't you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To my God I cried for help. And for three hours... The Lord didn't hear in his temple. And Jesus' cry didn't come to his ears. For three hours, there was no help. There was no answer. There was only more judgment, more wrath, more fury. As Jesus experienced verses 7 to 15 in full measure, as no human being ever has. But then... His sufferings were finished, and the sin of his people was atoned for. And at last the Lord did hear, and he did send help. And as verses 16 to 19 tell us, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord reached down from heaven into the tomb, into Sheol, and he raised Jesus to life on the third day, and he brought him out into a broad place. He exalted him to the right hand of God in heaven and gave him all authority in heaven and on earth and made him to be head over all things. And why did he do it? Because he delighted in Jesus Christ. If he delighted in David, how much more did he delight in David's greater son? He was well pleased with his obedient servant because those verses 20 to 24 were literally, perfectly, fully true for Jesus. He was blameless in all his ways. 
And that means that we read the rest of the psalm in a new light. Verses 30 to 45, this description of the overthrow of the enemies of the anointed king and the establishment of his kingdom. And that began at the cross and at the resurrection. And we've seen this continue. Verses 30 to 45 has been going on and on for 2,000 years as the enemies of the gospel are either overthrown or they are converted. David's kingdom was a small affair at the beginning. Just one tribe anointed him king, the tribe of Judah, out of 12. And even when all 12 recognized him as king, even at the height of David's kingdom, it was nothing really to rival the Roman Empire or the empire of Alexander the Great. But David looks ahead and he sees all the nations of the world joining the kingdom of the Messiah. He looks ahead to the ultimate destruction of all the enemies of Jesus Christ. He looks ahead in this psalm and he sees what Revelation, what John the Apostle saw in Revelation 11:15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And this evening we are part of that kingdom. The fact that we're here tonight reading this psalm 3,000 years after it was written and worshiping the Messiah that it talks about in this little tiny island in the North Atlantic, we are part of the fulfillment of these verses, the kingdom of God's anointed Messiah. And so we join with David and with even more understanding than he had we sing these words, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are included in the prophecy that we have just been singing, uh, that we are the nations among whom David says that he will give thanks and praise. We thank you that you have drawn us in to this kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for all that he did to establish his kingdom, for how he was willing to become as if he were your enemy in the place of his people. We thank you that because he has experienced all of the judgment and hell that we deserve, we thank you that we are able to praise you and worship you as members of his kingdom tonight. We thank you that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that cannot be destroyed, that it has been growing ever since the very beginning, uh, like a mustard seed at the start, but now uh, grown to fill all the nations of the earth. And we pray that you would cause it to grow yet further, that this very night you would gather men and women and young people and children into your kingdom, that they would bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him as their savior. We pray that you would cause your kingdom to come in all of its fullness. 
We pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, uh, that you would finally triumph over your enemies. And in the meantime, Lord, we pray that you will work through us and in us, that you will defeat the enemies of Christ and the gospel, even as we live holy lives in this world, as we resist the world of flesh and the devil, as we live and witness for you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to honor you and to serve you faithfully. We pray that we would do this more and more and that you would bless us and that you would reward us in accordance with our faith and with our, with our faithfulness. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.